What would you do if you won the lottery? This is a question that we've all been asked probably at some point in our lives. Um, try to be honest as you can and think of something. Um, you don't have to get super specific um, with what you do, but um, just have a general answer for it. Uh, once you have your answer, just quickly file that away, and then we're going to get back to that later. Charles Swindoll said, Jesus talks about money. One-sixth of the gospel and one-third of the parables address the subject of stewardship. Jesus was no fundraiser. He dealt with money matters. However, because money matters, it's a surprise to many people, Christians included, that the Bible has so much to say about the subject. God has given us three ways on this earth to invest in eternity. Two of them are up for discussion, and we approach them with open-mindedness. We can never seem to hear enough about them. But the third seems to be nobody else's business. The preacher who fails to address time and how we spend it is considered derelict in his duty, for time is one of those irretrievable values in life you can only spend once and never capture again. The pastor who overlooks teaching on talents and gifts that help the church body function smoothly and well and even efficiently is not doing his job. The congregation has a right to feel slighted because that subject is not mentioned. But let the man address the subject of treasure, and he's back on that age-old subject and trying to get our money. <clears throat> let me preface this message by saying, I'm not saying give all your money to Orchard. <laughs> We're just talking about giving because this passage in 2 Corinthians talks about it. And although it may be a tough pill to swallow, because I know it is for me, it's fundamental in our walk with Jesus Christ. Michael Norton is a professor of business at Harvard University, and he challenges the idea that money can't buy happiness. He says that, in fact, money can buy happiness if you spend it the right way. So let's go back to our lottery question on how you would spend your winnings. I know for me, I'd be tempted to buy a house in the mountains with a great view, or maybe even a really fast sports car, and maybe my house would have like a ski slope or something on it. So don't raise your hand, but how many of you, after thinking about winning the lottery, had a similar fantasy of buying a house somewhere remote, or maybe it's on an island, or even at the bottom of the ocean? Um, there's a lot of wild dreams that we can have when we think about having an almost unlimited source of money. Um, all these are common dreams that people have, but have you ever noticed how antisocial they are? People that have a lot of money often try to get as far away from everyone else as they can, and they don't become any happier. There have been tons of studies showing that there is no strong correlation to happiness and money. Some studies will even show that the more money that you have, the less happier you are. So back to this guy, Michael Norton. Uh, he did an experiment to try to prove that spending your money in the right way, you can actually become happier. So he went to the University of British Columbia and asked people if they wanted to be in an experiment. If they said yes, he would ask them, how happy are you? Then he would give them an envelope with money in it. The envelopes had different amounts of money in them, and some envelopes had a note that's inside that said, spend this money on yourself. And then other notes said, spend this money on someone else today. Others, the, the people that... Uh, sorry, at the end of the day, he called the people up and asked them how happy they were. 
the people who spent it on themselves were rated, rated themselves as happier, and the people that spent it on themselves said they weren't any happier than they were before. So another interesting thing was that the amount didn't matter. There was no correlation to more money making people happier or unhappier. So he went to Uganda to try this experiment again to see if poorer people responded differently. He found that it had the exact same results as before, but he did learn an additional trait of giving. One person in Uganda used the money to help pay for medicine for someone else. The person in Uganda said they were just as happy as someone in Canada that used the money to buy someone a cup of coffee. The point is that whether you use money to, to save someone, sorry, the point is whether it was used to buy someone a life-saving gift or simply a cup, cup of coffee, it brought the same happiness to the person giving the gift. His conclusion was that happiness did not depend on what money was being spent on, but that it was being spent on someone else. So is that it then? Are we supposed to give because it makes us happier? I think there's some truth to what he's saying, but I think if your reason for giving is to become happier, you're giving for the wrong reason. If being generous is the opposite of being greedy or selfish, then giving so that you gain happiness is not so selfish. So as you may have guessed, today's message is about giving. We'll be continuing through our 2 Corinthians series, and we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. So you can start to turn there if you'd like, um, but I will have them up on the screen. Uh, let's start by reading the first five verses. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our ex expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So point one that I think Paul is trying to make is that your money is not really your money. It's God's money. Paul's saying, look at the churches in Macedonia as an example. They were suffering. They were in deep poverty. And you know what they did? They begged us to let them give. Not only that, but they gave beyond their ability. Paul says, yeah, some gave according to what they had, but some gave more than they had. Um, he said, you, you can imagine him saying, I told some of you not to give because I know how much you have and you're giving too much. Um, but they begged, they begged that him to let them give. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound very wise. I thought God wants us to be good stewards, you know, be responsible. You shouldn't give money that you, haven't, that you can't afford to give away. Paul says, well, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. So this wasn't reluctant giving. They asked the Lord how much to give, and they responded. The people in Macedonia understood that they could trust God with their money because they understood that it was God's money to begin with. If God was calling them to do this, it was the most responsible thing that they could do. So we'll continue reading uh, in verse 6. It says, So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, 
and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Here's point two um, of what Paul's saying. Jesus gave everything for you and to you. Paul says, look, I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to give this amount or else you guys don't really love the people in Jerusalem. But the church in Macedonia gave out of poverty. And you all have an abundance. But all that you've done is said that you're going to give. Better yet, let's look at Christ. He was rich in heaven and yet became poor by becoming a man and paying a debt that you or I could never pay. You benefited more than you can even imagine from Christ's death. Through his poverty, you became rich. You got eternal life. That's something that you could never earn on your own. Paul says, your definition of rich is all wrong. You might think that you're poor, but you're really rich. If you believe in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, you could give every last possession and you'd still be rich. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rusts destroy but where th- and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rusts do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are these your definitions of the richest person? The person with the most paper with president's faces printed on them, the person with the most plastic, metal, or wooden things, the person with the largest net worth, or maybe it's the person with the most land, the person that lives the longest. All these things can be stolen or destroyed, but what, you can't, what can't be stolen or destroyed is treasures in heaven. So what are treasures in heaven? It's spending your life on what God wants, not what you want. And much like the Corinthians, it's easy to say that, but it's hard to do. It's easy to make a commitment, but hard to fulfill it. But that's the direction that God's leading us. Paul says, I give my opinion on this matter, for this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. This leads us to point three, that good intentions aren't good enough. Paul says, here's my opinion. You desire to do this, now act on it. I don't care how much you have to give. If you're ready to give, then give. But don't let the excuse that you won't make a difference keep you from giving. If the amount doesn't matter, then why should I give it all? Because giving is to benefit you. It's a way of saying I value you more than I value myself. It's a way that we can kill our selfishness and become more like Christ. Good intentions aren't good enough. I have a story um, about a conversation with my wife that I had just a few weeks ago. Uh, We were talking about our future and what that looked like now that I'd be done with school. 
Uh, and I said, I think it'd be really cool if we could give some money to these people because I just really appreciate them and think they have a great attitude in serving the Lord. Um, but I also followed with, I don't know, we'll see what our finances look like. <clears throat> so then my wife decides to put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> and she's good at that, by the way. My wife turned to me and said, are you kidding me? You're not sure? That sounds like a good idea. We're not, go we're not going to see if finances work out because I know how that will work out. <laughs> let's, make let's make finances work out and do it. We can start saving money every month now and we'll have something to give when we know that God wants us to give. So my wife had a plan for how we could do this. <laughs> um, so yeah, my wife's pretty awesome. Uh, I was really grateful that my wife called me out uh, the way that she did because it really made me realize that I need to stop talking like I'm gener being generous and actually be generous. <laughs> um, it was also good to realize that if I want to give, I should prepare myself to give so that when the time comes, I don't have an excuse. So I'd also like to quickly recall the story in Matthew 19 about the rich young man. And I'm going to paraphrase this passage so you don't necessarily have to turn there. In this passage, a man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what good things do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus says, why do you say good things? There is only one thing in this world that is good, and that's me. But if you want to be good, how about you obey the commandments? The man says, which ones are you talking about? Jesus says, the ones that say, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The man says, I've kept all those, so then what do I still lack? So Jesus laughs and says, well, you just lied. <laughs> just kidding, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. The man hears this and goes away sad because he had great wealth. So what's the problem with the man? The, the easy thing to say would be, well, he wasn't giving everything that he had to follow Christ. And that's true. Um, but I think the biggest problem that the rich man had was that he thought that he was rich. He had a lot of money, but he wasn't full and he wasn't happy. He says he went away sad. Ralph Emerson is a famous uh, 19th century poet, and he once said, money often costs too much. For the rich young man, it cost him eternal life. If there's anything keeping you from following Jesus, you're getting ripped off. It's costing you way too much. You can repent of that and believe in Jesus to be supremely valuable today and start living that way. So let's get back to our passage, um, verse 13. Paul ends with saying, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathers much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Point four that I think Paul is getting at is giving results in satisfaction, not misery. 
Paul says, look, I'm saying you, you don't have to starve to death so that others will have plenty to eat. But you have plenty to eat, then you should give to those who don't. The more you give, the more likely people are going to want to give when you need something. So Paul finishes by quoting Exodus 16, 18. This is when the Israelites were in the desert starving. (laughs) And God sent down manna for them to eat. It says that they went out and gathered manna, and some gathered a lot, and some gathered a little. But at the end of the day, they all had enough. God provides just enough for everyone. Paul is saying, this is how giving is fleshed out. When we give, we trust that God will provide enough both for us and them. And there's a great satisfaction in being part of God's work in that way. It's one of those things that after we take a step back, we look back and say, wow, only God could have done that. He provided enough for me and for them. So just like Michael Norton's study found we're actually more satisfied in life when we give. You might be afraid that giving will, be, will make you miserable, but it's actually not giving that makes us miserable. It's selfishness. Being selfish makes you miserable. So to conclude, we will have a summary. Um, point one is that your money is really God's money. God's provided you everything you have. He's the creator of the universe, so ultimately it's all his. Point two is that Jesus gave everything for you and to you. You may think you're rich, but until you have accepted God's free gift of salvation, you're still poor. Point three is that good intentions aren't good enough. God wants your obedience and submission. He wants you to give so that you become less selfish. Point four is Giving results in satisfaction, not misery. Trust God, not yourself. Giving brings satisfaction. Selfishness brings misery. We're all giving our lives to something. So um, we all want to be remembered for what we've given our lives for. Our money is just one reflection of what we're really living for. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your son Jesus who sacrificed everything so that we could become rich. Please help us repent of any selfishness. We commit to trusting you with all all that you've given us and we flee from the temptation of being generous. We would like to flee from being selfish by being generous. Lord, you know our hearts, so although we can often deceive everyone on earth, I pray that you would be changing our hearts to store up treasures in heaven.